Shadow Warrior Podcast. I'm the host, Rajiv Srinivasan. Today's episode, number 113, is titled, Uday Nidhi Stalin has called for genocide, and that must be taken seriously. There are several reasons why we cannot take Uday Nidhi Stalin's ramblings or even rants as something to be laughed at or ignored. There are at least three reasons. The first is that what he said is completely illegal. The second that it is immoral and actually criminal to call for genocide. And third, this is pure propaganda because demonizing the enemy has a long history. Let's take a look at these things one by one. The first is simple illegality. If you believe that the Indian Constitution is the document that spells out how an Indian citizen should behave, then there are two fundamental rights there. The first is the right to equality of all citizens, or to all citizens. No citizen should be considered below another, according to the Constitution. Similarly, there is a constitutional right to worship. And both these are fundamental rights which Udaynadi Stalin has attempted to violate. On the one hand, he places Hindus, or Sanatanis as he calls them, below everybody else in terms of their right to worship uh, in the way they want to. And that is not something he would deny to others. There are non-Hindus in India. He did not state that others should be exterminated or wiped out or anything of that kind, which means that this is a highly partial statement, which is basically anti-constitutional, therefore illegal. And the Supreme Court has every reason and every right, in fact, an obligation to take suamoto recognition of these uh, violations of fundamental rights and uh, and bring a uh, case against him. Whether or not the Supreme Court will do that, we don't know, but there is certainly a legal case. The second is that even more than the legalities and nitpickings and uh, uh, hair splittings by the law, this is immoral and uh, it is actually criminal because after the experiences of various groups that have been genocided over the last uh, century or so, for example, the uh, uh, Cambodians or the Jews or the uh, Tutsis in Rwanda, it is now widely accepted that any calls for genocide are completely outside the pale. They do not have any support or any protection under the so-called free speech because free speech stops the moment it becomes hate speech. And there is no question that uh, the call for genocide or extermination of a group of people is, is hate speech. Some time ago, I spoke about hate speech in the Indian context and free speech. This was when a movie Fire was uh, uh, in the news. And there I pointed out that, yes, you do have the right to free speech, but you have to exercise a certain amount of uh, self-control and discretion. For example, yes, you do have the right to shout fire in a crowded theater, but you don't exercise that because there are consequences to yourself and to other people. So the same thing applies here. There are free speech principles for sure. Every citizen has the right to free speech, but 
it stops at the other person's nose in some sense. That is, the other individual also has the right to live unmolested by free speech. So I think this principle is uh, pretty much accepted around the world that you simply cannot call for genocide. That is, I would say, I'm not sure about the legality of that, but I would say that's a call for a war crime or a crime against humanity and has to be treated with that level of gravity. The third point is that this is pure propaganda and we have known that demonizing the enemy has a long history throughout uh, mankind's various centuries of wars and, and, and animosities and so forth. So for example, the invading Spaniards in South America called Aztecs cannibals. Now the Aztecs, vice versa, called the Spaniards cannibals and the idea was that this is probably the worst thing you can call somebody you don't like. But unfortunately, white people got to write the history books. So what we hear is that the Aztecs were cannibals, but we don't hear the opposite, that uh, the Spaniards were called ca cannibals by, this, by the Aztecs as well. Another example during the Second World War was the demonizing of the Japanese as the Yellow Peril by the Americans. And there is, I think, even a book, if I'm not mistaken, the name of the book is Demonizing the Enemy, which... Uh, gives enormous numbers of examples of how graphic novels and books and whatnot were uh, were portraying the Japanese as untermenschen, inhuman, uh, non-human people who could be uh, essentially exterminated, as in as in Odeiniki's uh, uh, statement, you know, wiped out. Another example, of course, that's quite well known. We have seen. Um, all these films and uh, read all these books about how the Nazis were out to exterminate uh, Jews as well as Roma. I have gone to the uh, Roma Memorial and the Jewish Memorial in Berlin and yes, they were very clear about how these were again untermenschen who did not deserve to live. So the Jews actually were called vermin by, um, by the Nazis and uh, similarly a more recent example would be what happened in Cambodia. There was genocide where a lot of people were uh, deemed to be not quite uh, socialist enough, not quite communist enough, and uh, one-seventh of the population of Cambodia was wiped out under Pol Pot and his murderous regime. More recently still, there is the genocide that happened in Rwanda. Interestingly, Hutus who were uh, the dominant group. They're called the minority group Tutsis cockroaches. So you see how demonization also ends up in uh, subhumanization of the enemy. And of course, the Hutus then went ahead and, uh, and uh, genocided the Tutsis, uh, almost wiping them out, with uh, incidentally the collusion of the church, the International Criminal Court, has sentenced several church people, including a couple of nuns and a bishop, uh, for crimes against humanity. Incidentally, in this context, the late Enes Rajaram made a very interesting comment. He recalled how Bishop Caldwell and his uh, acolytes like uh, Ramaswamy Naikar had attempted pretty much to do exactly the same thing that happened in Rwanda, where one group had arbitrarily been declared to be foreigners or invaders or oppressors or something 
and they were supposedly genetically different and then the result was genocide. According to Rajaram, this was the idea in uh, Tamil Nadu when Caldwell invented this whole thing about Dravida versus Arya and then took that to be a genetic difference and called the Brahmins in Tamil Nadu Aryas and oppressors. But the point is that there is practically no genetic difference between the Brahmins and the non-Brahmins in Tamil Nadu, as is true in other parts of India as well. There may be genetic differences between different parts of the country, but in one area there is practically no difference. But as in the case of the Tutus and the Hutsis, where in Rwanda the Tutus were supposed to be tall and fair and uh, the Hutus were short and dark, in fact there is no visible physical evidence to that and genetically as well they were pretty much identical but as I mentioned there was and we are we're all aware of this there was a horrific genocide in uh, Rwanda in the not too distant past and it was only through God's grace and in fact because of Sanatana Dharma's tolerance that a similar thing did not happen in Tamil Nadu although Ivi Ramaswamy Naikar and his uh, friends the Justice Party, etc., tried very hard to make that happen. Now, the history of the Justice Party and uh, its fall-offs or, or, or out, outgrowths like the DMK, etc., is shameful. And to be frank, they are basically arms of conversion because despite all their claims of being anti-religion, they turn out to be only anti-Hindu. So you have Ramaswamy Naikar declaiming against Hindus, but he never once said a word, so far as I can tell, against Christianity in particular, or Islam, for that matter. So when, you, when you're reserving your spite and your bile for just one community, that is highly partial. Now, we're also seeing a lot of anti-Hindu memes in the West these days. There is the California caste bill, most uh, visibly. Then there is this group called Equality Labs, and their uh, and they're dismantling Hindutva conference. Then there is this woman named Audi Trusky somewhere in New Jersey, I think Rutgers University, who's been running around for years, essentially saying uh, all sorts of uh, terrible things against Hinduism. And, and most recently, the rise of Vivek Ramaswamy has uh, led to a number of anti-Hindu memes among some people in the US. So what we're seeing is, I think partially as a backlash towards the obvious affluence and the rise economically at least of Hindus in the US there is a uh, jealousy which is uh, manifesting itself in these anti-Hindu activities. Now we've also seen that uh, this narrative has gone from Hindutva being opposed where they said Hinduism is good but Hindutva is bad. Now that's moved forward to Hinduism is bad and now Udayniti Stalin's statement is that Sanadana Dharma, which is another name for Hinduism, although it does include things like uh, uh, the other dharmic faiths. So we're seeing an escalation right in front of our eyes at this point, which means that I think this is part of the deep state plan for uh, intruding in and, uh, uh, and, and manipulating the 2024 elections, because we've seen sophisticated uh, kinds of uh, propaganda and PR, which almost certainly is not just Indian, but it's, uh, it's, it's supported by the deep state and the Soros Foundation and so forth. 
Now, the India Alliance, or the Indy Alliance, as it should be called, which has been cobbled together to oppose the BJP, has shown itself to be purely anti-Hindu because one of its components, i.e. the DMK, made these horrific statements about Hindus and uh, the Congress, for example, and others in the Indy Alliance have essentially supported him and uh, they've not condemned what uh, Udayaniti said, but they've supported it, which means that uh, it's very clear that the Indy Alliance is completely anti-Hindu in its outlook. Now, there is an interesting question here, which raises um, some issues for the BJP as well. Well, the BJP has been in power for 10 years almost. Why are Hindu temples still managed by the state and looted by the state? There is uh, an interesting new book by Anand Rangandathan, who says that Hindus are not even second-class citizens in India. They're eighth-class citizens, and he goes into a lot of evidence to show that, and he says that Hindus are people with far fewer rights than others in India, which, as I said earlier, is against constitutional guarantees of equality. So the question, again, you know, not only is the India alliance, but so is the BJP guilty of not doing enough to emancipate Hindus and release them from the uh, shackles that were put in uh, place by the British. For example, before the British came, Hindu temples were the center of society. They did all kinds of things, not only religious, but also educational. They were the centers of the performing arts. They supported large numbers of creators. So, for example, you had in Guruvayur Temple, the uh, great uh, authors, Melpathur Patadiri and uh, Narayana Patadiri and uh, Pundanandambudiri, they wrote some of the most uh, outstanding uh, religious poetry. And then also they were supporting scientists and other creators and inventors. So the temples were the center of such activity and other secular activity, like, for example, famine relief or flood relief or the buildings of uh, dams to prevent um, or to, to manage you know, hydrological uh, activity. So there is a plethora of things that the temples did. And this remains in the racial memory of Hindus. This is why we donate to temples uh, on an ongoing basis. But it's turned out that that's absolutely the wrong thing to do these days because that money is looted by governments. And quite a lot of it actually ends up being diverted to uh, uh, other religions. For example, you, ha you have taxpayer-funded um, incentives of all kinds and benefits of all kinds to non-Hindus, for example, for pilgrimage, uh, for Christians or Muslims, etc. So, in a way, our civilizational heritage of the temples being the center of our society has been damaged, I don't think irrevocably, the government, including the central government, have to do something about getting out of temple management and leaving it to the uh, uh, the devotees, just like uh, mosques and churches are left alone. They don't even have to submit audited uh, um, statements, you know, their balance sheets or anything to anybody, whereas the government happily steals. And this is in every state in the country. So to sum it up, I think what... Uh, that this talent said is not really surprising because that's sort of the kind of attitude that the DMK and the Justice Party have had against Hindus for a long time, which is tragic because 
Hinduism generally minds its own business and doesn't bother anybody else. And for that to be considered something that needs to be exterminated is, as I said, illegal, criminal, and downright a crime against humanity.